0: Hey Irish fans, Alex Painter here to remind you that this episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, or more, please check out our pals at WCScreens.com. They have nationwide shipping and wholesale pricing. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but, like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. All right, level with me here for a second. Raise your hand, nod your head, or even give the infamous finger pistol if you have stepped foot in that ever so notorious neighbor of Notre Dame. Yes, friends, I am talking about the Linebacker Lounge. Now, hopefully, if and when you have provided patronage to the establishment, you are of legal age, but maybe a story on that later. Anyways, today's offering is about the early history of the Linebacker, as well as its, we'll call it an inexorable connection to Notre Dame football. So buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello Irish fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and welcome to the 83rd episode of the show. I have quite an offering for you today, perhaps a bit lighter fare than we generally do around here. But today, as I mentioned in the show, Lee, we are going to be talking about the Linebacker Lounge and its early origins But I hope that everyone has had the opportunity to listen to last month's fourth anniversary special where I had the opportunity, really the pleasure, to speak with former Notre Dame quarterback and All-American Terry Hanratty. He was awesome, very gracious with his time, and gave us some really fantastic insight. So if you haven't already, go back and give it a listen. I implore you, and especially as we are kind of bearing down on the 2023 football season coming in just a few weeks honestly it's certainly worth your time but before we jump in the blue and gold time machine once again let's give some roses or even more apt perhaps some shamrocks to some special folks yes you knew it the consensus all americans they are those very special individuals who contribute to the show monetarily these folks who have either contributed again significantly in the past, or are currently donating to the show, include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. Thank you all. And if you'd like to join the ranks of the Consensus Americans yourself, please feel free to visit the virtual collection baskets at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash Podcast. If you aren't in a position to give, hey, no worries. You can still like, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, or tell all your friends and family about the show as well. Now, as I'm recording this episode, uh, it was just broken a few hours ago, several I guess at this point, that 197 Heisman Trophy winner, Mr. Notre Dame himself, Johnny Lujak, has passed away. Rest assured, I will be doing an episode about Mr. Lou Jack he's very special to the program to the history of Notre Dame and just a beacon of that spirit of Notre Dame that we'd like to talk about here on the show and there's going to be tributes pouring in you know he was a fantastic college football player he was a really good professional player he was a World War II veteran and an excellent ambassador for Notre Dame over the past six seven decades seven plus decades really now that I'm doing the math in my head so the tributes are going to be pouring in rest assured onward to victory we will be doing something for Johnny Jack, uh, a hero of the shows even uh, but I'm going to kind of take a maybe a different angle find a different story maybe a chapter of his life not often told but that one that is telling of the kind of person that he was he was magnificent so that's going to be coming before the season starts rest assured so uh, rest in peace always to Mr. Johnny Lou Jack, died today, July 25th, 2023 at age 98. All right, but to the task at hand for now, to get everyone acclimated, the linebacker lounge is situated oh, about a 15 minute or so walk from Notre Dame Stadium to the southeast. But really though, if you cross the street which is East Angela Boulevard, You're already in the shadow of the baseball and softball stadiums, as well as the track and field facility. It's honestly one of those places that you are about as close as you can get to campus while still being off campus. And personally, I have been there a few times, I suppose, over the years. And listen, it's a cool place, mostly because it's been around for so long and it's so close to Notre Dame. So I definitely think it hits people in that nostalgia bone quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, other than that, and I don't mean this as a slight, it's just kind of your typical neighborhood bar. Um, and speaking of, I'm actually cracking open a yingling for this one because yes, we are talking about a bar, but we are also talking about a good Pennsylvania man today. And though Pottsville and Pittsburgh are a couple hundred miles away, they still have very close ties and well, for today, uh, Yingling is just going to have to do. So, for this first bit, I assume the statute of limitations has passed, which is a great way to start any anecdote, right? But the year was 2015. It was actually in February because it was right after Father Hesberg had passed away, and I was in South Bend on a work trip, actually. But as it were, I was successful in sneaking in my then 18-year-old brother, Colton who had accompanied me on said trip. So, we were obviously well-behaved, and we didn't stay too terribly long. And I think since we have both kind of battened down the hatches, so to speak. But, uh, we were both possessive, especially at the time. A bit of a rebellious streak. Uh, The only difference was Colton was young and just following his older brother, who probably insisted everything was going to be cool. So, I had no excuse for such a move. I was plenty old enough to know way better, but... Still a fun memory, and uh, not to be too self-critical here, people sneak into bars all the time. Uh, (laughs) My wife has been into the backer, and it's just always been a great time for us as well. But anyways, what is the provenance, or origin, of the Linebacker Lounge? To begin our journey, let's head to Greater Pittsburgh, Van Voorhees, Pennsylvania to be exact. So we're talking just a bit south of Pittsburgh, but there on January 18th, 1939, a gentleman named Myron Pontios was born and he would later become a four sports star at nearby Charleroi area high school. Myron or Mo, as he would later be commonly called was just a stud athletically in high school. And Moe had an older brother named Ray that kind of blazed the trail for him in high school athletics. And Moe was always quick to credit Ray with much of his success athletically. To that effect, listen to this. This is from a 2016 issue of the Herald Standard. Quote, Ray taught Myron how to train back in a time when there was no sophisticated systems in place. He would improvise, said Myron, who added that in order to get the effect of lifting weights to build muscles, he'd push me around in a car to build his legs to gain lower body strength. For squats, he would put me on his shoulders, and then he would do the squats. We didn't have weights, and I continued to do that when I got to high school, end quote. And not for nothing, Ray would end up at Penn State, where he was a wrestler, and then he would later become the winningest coach at Lewisburg High School, which is about an hour from State College, but Ray in his own right would become a Penn State legend. So just to get reacclimated again, we are talking about that area south of Pittsburgh along the Monongahela River, and I always hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Moe ends up taking three of his teams, football, basketball, and baseball, to the Pennsylvania State Finals as a senior in 1956-1957. And he also competed at the state level and shot put in discus. So though they finished state runner-up in all three team sports, Moe caught the attention of a certain head football coach at Notre Dame named Terry Brennan. At the time, Moe was 6'2 and about 215 pounds of sheer toughness. You can tell, especially at that time, 6'2, two, 215 pounds, that probably went over pretty well with the college scouts. But just to interject for a moment, Van Voorhees, which is today less than 170 people, was a place where toughness was evidently bred. It was a coal mining town, which were also sometimes called coal camps. And for lack of a better phrase, these were kind of the epitome of a one-horse town. So unfortunately for Van Voorhees, their mine actually closed about six months before Myron was born. So, just to reiterate, this would have been cataclysmic for the vitality of Van Voorhees. So, these folks were hard scrabble man, because they kind of had to be. And should you want to move to Van Voorhees today, you can actually buy a home on, yeah, you guessed it, Patios Drive. So, apparently at some point, the very small town named a street after their native son's. I'm assuming, anyways. So, back to Notre Dame, the, the humbleness of Pontios resumes as he is this time even six decades after the fact. Quote, So I'm this kid from Van Voorhees and he's Terry Brennan, coach of Notre Dame, sitting in my living room with a potbelly stove talking to me about going to Notre Dame. End quote. Again, this is according to the Herald Standard, but Pontios ultimately decided not to go to Penn State like his older brother had, but to go with Brennan to the University of Notre Dame. And, believe it or not, Moe was not the only kid from his area who went to play football at Notre Dame that year. His high school teammate, Bill Pence, also signed on. During the 1957 season, Moe's freshman year, it was best known for Notre Dame's upset win over Oklahoma to break their 47-game winning streak. I got an episode about that. Check it out if you're interested. But uh, Pontios and Pence were on the freshman squad, as I mentioned, in the 1957 Football Review summed up Moe's work as follows, quote, two of the most impressive players in the fall practice sessions have been Bill Mack and Myron Pontios. Pontios is a strong 6'2", 215 pounds, and hails from Van Voorhees, Pennsylvania. He excels on defense in his middle linebacker position while also showing great ability as a hard-running fullback but on the freshman squad that year there were actually five players so he was one of the first two listed there so that means mo was indeed standing out amongst the crop but the following season 1958 this was a six and four campaign out of the irish mo actually broke into the starting lineup as both an offensive lineman and a linebacker so we're not suiting up at fullback anymore, but rather, Coach Brennan opted to use Mo's size and physicality and toughness and strength up front on the line. But on defense, he intercepted a pass, logged 32 tackles, and he recovered a fumble as well. So not too shabby there for the sophomore. And this was in a season that was actually cut short because he had a shoulder injury. However, the Notre Dame administration went in a different direction. They were tired of what they thought were lackluster results out of Terry Brennan, who was, of course, unfairly expected to be the second coming of Frank Leahy, and Leahy was actually a very vocal critic of, of Brennan's, actually. So Brennan's contract was not renewed. Now, Onward to Victory is a big Terry Brennan fan, and so I say this to say perhaps he was treated unfairly towards the end of his tenure. But if the Notre Dame administration thought that the football was bad, and it wasn't, under Terry Brennan, well, they were in for a little treat once Joe kuharic was hired, who was succeeded Coach Brennan. But um, but anyway, so Brennan, we'll get to that in a second. Brennan went 32-18 and 18 in five seasons as coach. And so, again, I would just point out, Brennan was much better than folks remember. He had three top ten finishes. And if you throw out that 2-8 and eight campaign that the 1956 team had, he won 75% of his games otherwise. So for the final two years of his college career, though, Patios would have former Notre Dame man again, Joe Kuheric who had previously coached Washington and Chicago in the NFL. But unfortunately for me, he actually tore ligaments in his knee during the third game of the 1959 season, and he missed the rest of the year. But in less than three games of action, he actually had 24 tackles. So Irish fans just knew he was the next guy. His teammates knew he was the next guy. He just had a nose for the football. But the 1959 Football Review assessed the situation as follows, quote, Patios was the anchor of the Irish defense and a real hard-nosed competitor who inspired his teammates and made tackles all over the field. His loss was a stunning blow, end quote. So that team, the 1959 team, ultimately went 5-5, five and five, but it was the second straight year that Moe had missed significant time due to injury. But the following season, Moe's senior year, he was actually elected team captain. So this would be the 1960 season. He was clearly respected by his teammates because this is, of course, the era in which there was only really one team captain. But if you were to watch any of the games from the 1960 season, you were going to find big number 75 in the thick of the action whether it was on offense where he played guard or linebacker. He was an absolute difference maker on both sides of the ball. But the 1960 season was pretty much a disaster. They started the year with a 21-7 victory over Cal, and then something happened that I don't believe had happened before, and I will venture to say will never happen again and that is the team lost the next eight games eight game losing streak they were just not very good in fact one could argue this is probably the worst Irish team in their history and yes they had gone two and eight just four years before in 1956 but I guess at that point they at least had Paul Horning but when you think about it 1956 they went 2 and 8 and 1960 they went 2 and 8 we are clearly in the leanest era of Notre Dame football however to mo and his teammates credit they did win the final game of the season the jewel challely game in Los Angeles they beat USC so i guess if there was ever a silver lining to the 1960 season that is that they went to LA and they beat USC Huge rivalry game, and they got to bring home the jeweled shillelagh. So there was that. Moe was given a game ball, and the players carried Coach Carrick off the field. And again, Moe did lead the team with tackles, 74 per the football review. So nearly seven and a half tackles per game. I mean, that's not too bad at all, right? But for this edition of the Irish, there was really only one bona fide prospect for the 1961 draft whether it was for the NFL or the competing AFL, because, of course, there were two professional football leagues at that time, as many are aware. And that one bona fide prospect was Myron Patios. Fall Review shared that, quote, there is little doubt that Patios will be a top draft pick when the men who know the pros make their draft selections in the annual draft. With his size, speed, and natural ability, Mo is a top professional prospect, end quote. And sure enough, when the respective drafts come along, he was selected twice, once by each league. Both leagues were vying for his service, but in the NFL, it was his hometown Pittsburgh Steelers who came calling in the second round at pick 19. So again, NFL. And then the AFL, he was picked by the Oakland Raiders in the third round at pick 20. Naturally, he opted to go back home to begin his professional career, and he signed with the Steelers. And as a quick aside, because this is important, Moe had studied business administration as a student, which might come to help him here perhaps a little bit later on in our story. But all right, now to the other part of the narrative, if you will. Let's head to the spot, 1631 South Bend Avenue. Yes, yeah, spoiler alert, if uh, you walk walking there today, that is the exact location of the Linebacker Lounge. Well, the earliest record I could find in the newspaper of anything going on here at this particular spot was February 1951. So this is actually well before Mo Patios was even in high school, but at a time, at the time, pardon me, a joint called Skinny's Cafe was looking for a dishwasher to help out. Now the next year, so we're talking of 1952, The place either sold to a different owner or it was simply renamed eve's cafe and it was on such account that the owner was a woman named eve dwyer which she owned the establishment with her husband walter dwyer now across the memories of folks in south bend eve's is what may resonate for some people who may have been around long enough but Throughout the summer of 1952, Eves placed Help Wanted ads in the South Bend Tribune for car hops. So that certainly gives you an idea that they weren't just a place where people went inside to eat, but rather patrons could also be served in their cars. It makes me wonder if the Eves car hops were roller skates, kind of like that classic image of the 1950s car hop. and. I don't know, maybe someone out there could possibly answer that for us. So if you can, onward to Victory podcast at gmail.com. Would love to know more about this location that even predated the Linebacker Lounge. Feel free to drop a line. But unfortunately, on August 28th, 1954, so if my math is correct, exactly 59 years to the day before my son was born... <laughs> Uh, Something happened that unfortunately would become very commonplace for this location. So per the South Bend Tribune, someone broke into Eves and stole 15 cartons of cigarettes and the change from the coin-operated record player. The police said the burglars entered through the window. So this is August of '54. And unfortunately, this was going to happen again and again. In September of 1955, the South Bend police corralled a gang of juvenile delinquents, all aged 14 to 17 years old, who admitted to robbing six South Bend area establishments and stealing five cars Man, committing grand theft auto over and over and over again. That's pretty gutsy. Uh, but uh, anyways, one of the places they knocked over was Eve's Cafe. They stole a few wristwatches, pardon me, and $20 out of the cash drawer. That's September of 55. In March of 57, Eves was robbed again. These poor people. It was described in the paper that this was the third time that month that the cafe had been burglarized. Mrs. Dwyer said that between cash, goods, and equipment stolen, the total losses equaled about $400. She shared this included the pinball machine, the jukebox, And the cigarette dispensers, they all got boosted. The folks who pulled this burglary were eventually caught. But the bad news is, is that the store was again ransacked in August of 1957. Then again in March, July and September of 1958. As I was kind of going through the newspapers, I'm like, this is just awful. If you were to consider all the times that just, we have talked about that's over, well, that's nine times nine times so i really hope the dwyers had good insurance but apparently in 1959 they had enough and they sold the restaurant it was renamed nola's restaurant and it was robbed only and i'm using only very charitably here twice in 1959 in july and december but fortunately that seems to be the end of it or at least those reported by the tribune So let's move off the clearly at this point snake-bitten establishment and go back to... So how do you think he's doing? In 1961, he's with the Steelers during his rookie season. He is not only selected to a Pro Bowl that first season, but he also receives votes for Rookie of the Year, which, by the way, went to a certain Chicago tight end named Mike Ditka. Perhaps you've heard of him. But former Golden Domer Paul Horning won the Most Valuable Player Award. So again, we've kind of heard of these guys, right? But I'd like to add that when Moe hit the pro ranks, he is just playing linebacker. Now, there's a context clue there. And unfortunately, though, at the time... The tackle wasn't a widely kept statistic, so we have no idea how many tackles he had, but he had quite a few interceptions those first years, and he is, you know, he's making good early goings here of his pro career, but unfortunately, he's hurt in 1962, broke his arm. He missed the entire season. What a bummer. But just like at Notre Dame, during his sophomore and junior years, he doesn't let injury deter him. He finished the next season, 1963, as a second-team All-Pro. And again, he has voted to the Pro Bowl. So again, don't forget the Pro Bowl, kind of the All-Star game, but the All-Pro list is a little bit more selective. So he is a second-team All-Pro in his second season playing. I guess his third season technically, but his second season playing. And he was voted to the Pro Bowl again in '64. So consider this. Again, three seasons he's been playing. He's voted to the Pro Bowl every time. And speaking of 1964, alas, our stories collide. Now, the Linebacker Lounge has long held that it was founded in 1962, or at least I've seen that on some, like, T-shirts and some hats and stuff, and perhaps it was, and perhaps there's a story there that I couldn't find. Or perhaps one of you could help me corroborate this. But while digging through the South Bend Tribune, I was able to find that on May 20th, 1964, Moe and his business partner were able to transfer, an alcohol permit, in front of the St. Joseph County Board of Alcoholic Beverages. The transfer was from a gentleman named Clarence C. Gant, who had owned an establishment of some kind on the 300 block of Michigan Street, downtown South Bend. So if you're familiar with that section of town today, there's an IRS building as well as like an overflow bookstore for the uh, library nearby. But anyway, the permit is transferred to Mo as the proprietor of the Linebacker Inn, which I know some folks still call the Linebacker Lounge, the Linebacker Inn, because it was known as the Linebacker Inn for a long time, and there's still some signage that, referred to it, that refers to it. Pardon me, as the Linebacker Inn. But this happened in 1964, so not trying to conjure up any hot takes here. But I just couldn't find any mention of the Linebacker Inn or the Linebacker Lounge for that matter, in the newspapers before 1964. But, of course, the place was named as such because, yeah, it was just a stone's throw from football stadium, but it was also owned and ostensibly named for one of the best linebackers in the NFL at that time, Notre Dame product Myron Patios. So Patios would enjoy a long career, and he actually played through 1973. And in 2007, he was named to the Pittsburgh Steelers Legends Team, which sought to recognize those impactful Steeler players pre-1970. So. In 2007 that was to kind of celebrate the 75th anniversary of the team but they kind of did this legends team because if they wanted to vote the all-time steelers team surely they would all be from those great 70s teams so they made the steelers legends team to kind of commemorate those players who played for the steelers during some of their leaner years because as we know again they got pretty damn good there after 1970 but um so yeah myron is named to the legends team. And um, yeah, My- Myron, he's hes still alive today, and I'd love to talk to him about the linebacker as well as his playing career. But there you have it, folks. Uh, the short history of the early years of the linebacker lounge. So cheers! And the next time you're in the establishment, make sure you raise a glass to its founder, which would of course be Myron Patios, but Also, you know what, while you're at it, to Skinny's Cafe, to Eve's Cafe, and to Nola's Restaurant, which unfortunately just must have been quite the easy mark for would-be robbers or burglars during the 1950s, because man, these poor people got got knocked over quite a bit so cheers to them and if you have any more information about the linebacker or any memories to share you know what if you have memories of the linebacker lounge send them to onward to victory podcast at gmail.com and you know what next episode i'll read every one of them so if you got a good one send it on in but you know i'm going to sign off here but just be on the lookout here as we head into august There will be a season preview episode, as there always is, and I'm kind of gearing up for that, but I have two more episodes planned other than that. As I mentioned, the Johnny Lujak uh, tribute episode is coming. I think that's going to be a really important one, and like I said, I'm just striving to find something that's a little bit different as far as a tribute is concerned And uh, from what will obviously be pouring in here for the next coming days, I should say and as well as I'd like to do another Iconic Sites at Notre Dame. So that's also coming in addition to the season preview episode. It's going to be a very busy next about five weeks before the season starts. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and following on Facebook if you're of the Facebook persuasion. And please know that I am ever so appreciative, again, as last month the show crossed the four-year mark, that you all are still here and still listening and hopefully still enjoying. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.